came here to straighten you out. I thought I, I was told I was coming here as the spiritual speaker, and if you think it's ridiculous that he be your spiritual chairperson, wait till you hear my story. You'll really know ridiculous. <laughs> I'd like to thank the committee uh, for their hospitality. It's really been phenomenal. I'd like to thank Medi uh, for inviting me. I guess it was two years ago, and I've been looking forward to this ever since. And it has been with great anticipation, and it's been worth every day of the wait. I've had such a good time. I can't remember a convention at which I've laughed as much. We've just had such a good time. I've propositioned a whole lot of guys, all to no avail. <laughs> a few guys have propositioned me, all again, to no avail. <laughs> Where are you, Frank? <laughs> Frank and I have done a couple of rounds. <clears throat> and I've got six of my buds here from Toronto. Where are you? Stand up, please. Haven't seen much of them. I don't know what they've been propositioning, but anyway. We've met occasionally, and it's just great to know that they're here. I also met a few fellows from Montreal this morning, so anybody else from Canada, it's great to have you here, too. So again, thank you. I think that coming from another country, it would be unfeeling to come to a podium in your country and not express some regret for the events of the last two months. And that is a regret that I express from the bottom of my heart. And I'd like to share something with you, an experience that I had on November the 6th. I'm a lover of the, of the symphony and, and classical music and, and so on, and I was at a, a concert given by the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir. And when we arrived there, in the program was an insert. And in the, on the insert was a, a short... Um, paragraph followed by the words to the star-spangled banner and I'd like to tell you what that insert said it said it is unprecedented that the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir asks the members and the patrons of this in this audience to sing the national anthem of another country but because of the events of the past two months the events particularly of September the 11th we feel a great sorrow for our friends in the United States. And we in Canada know that since we're a much smaller country, if we value our freedom and if our freedom were threatened, we know who would be there to support us in the, in the uh, keeping of our freedom. And it is therefore with great um, feeling that we ask you to sing the Star Spangled Banner with enthusiasm and with gratitude. And and first we sang O Canada, which is our national anthem, and then we sang God Save the Queen, which is our heritage, and then the music began for the Star Spangled Banner. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the hall, and there was a roar of music as we sang your country's national anthem, and I was proud to be one of the people doing that. I spoke to my friend Jay in Los Angeles the next day, and I told him what I had experienced. And he said, be sure that when you come into the States, you let the other Americans know that you care about them. So thank you very much. That's the gift I bring you, along with the dollars my buds have left at the gambling tables. <laughs> and now what I really came to do. A friend of mine t told me that some years ago he was to speak at a conference, but the conference was canceled. It was a nudist conference, and they canceled it because everybody was comparing and nobody was identifying. <laughs> Thank you.
We know how important identification is in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm going to ask you if you would, if you can identify with me, I have developed a way of get, letting you get to know me very quickly. I've made up my own set of 20 questions in three parts, easy, medium, and difficult. And I'd like you to participate with me. So here we go. Are you game? Okay, great. How many here were born on a farm in Saskatchewan? I bet you don't even know where Saskatchewan is. How many here German by descent? Few heel clickers here, okay. How many here were raised Roman Catholic? A whole lot of hands went up. All right. How many here are the youngest of 10 children? A few hands. Good. All right. The difficult part now is part B. Get ready. How many here are, were Roman Catholic sisters for 15 years? Nobody. How many here were ever locked up? Everybody. Isn't that fun? How many here were locked up in mental institutions, psychiatric wards, insane asylums, 32 times? Okay. How many here were ever tied to the bed? I do invite you to look around because there's a second part to that question. How many here were tied to the bed, but not for fun and frolic? <laughs> there are not nearly as many hands, the second question. And I hope those of you who are sitting with your friends took note of who's who. How many here were diagnosed as being schizophrenic, schizoid, paranoid, schizoid, Paranoid, schizoid, manic, depressive, manic, manic, depressive, depressed. Having an organic personality disorder. Having a chronic personality disorder. Anybody got them all? Talk to me later. How many here had shock treatments? How many here had 38 shock treatments? I don't think I see a hand. Okay, and the last question of that part, how many here married their psychiatrist? <laughs> it was supposed to be cheaper. <laughs> All right, part three. How many here always felt alone? How many, keep them up. How many here always felt lonely? How many here felt different? How many here felt they were dropped on the wrong planet? How many here felt they were dropped on their head? How many here felt that they were dropped into the wrong family? All right. Thank you. Now we have some identification going. How many here felt new? that if they put alcohol into their bodies, that the allergy would kick in, which would manifest as a craving, and one drink would be too many because 50 weren't enough. How many identify with that? Okay, not the Al-Anons, of course. <laughs> I have a friend in Al-Anon, on a big week, he buys a six-pack. And then he opens one bottle, you know him, Ajit. He opens one bottle, and two weeks later, I go into his fridge, and there's a half a bottle of beer with a cap on it. I tell him he's sick. Okay, how many identify with this, that the main problem rests in the mind? Okay, now, I really got stuck on that one, because I always thought mind meant intellect, and I'm smart. I accomplish things. I have university degrees and so on and so on, like many of you. 
And I thought, how can that be? And I sort of passed that over until one time I was in Winnipeg. And Tom G. took me aside and he said, Mildred, that isn't what it means. When it says that the main problem rests in the mind, it is not referring to your intellect. It is referring to that non-physical part, if you want to call it the soul, the spirit, that part that you can't get your hands on, the values, the beliefs, the thoughts, the feelings that you have suppressed and repressed in the unconscious, but that nevertheless are the drivers of your life. And I understood something, that this was indeed where my problem was. What is really, like, why would somebody like myself, who was raised in a good Catholic home with decent parents and in a good environment, wind up the way I did on the street? What is the problem? I think the book is very specific about what the problem is, and I misunderstood it for a long time. It says in the chapter to the agnostics in the first paragraph, the last two sentences, I think it is, if you want to stop drinking or you want to moderate how much you drink, you may and cannot, you may be suffering from a disease which only a spiritual experience will conquer. If that is the solution, the spiritual experience, then I take it the disease has to be the lack of that spiritual experience. And isn't that what step 12 says? I missed it for so long. I thought step 12 was all about gung-ho, go and carry the message. You know, I used to go and carry the message when I was in Prince Albert, and Cease now says I carried the disease rather than the message because I hadn't done the work and therefore I hadn't had the spiritual experience. Because it says in the book, in the steps, that as the result of doing these steps, we will have a spiritual experience. We will wake up spiritually. And I think that means it tells me who I truly am, you see. And that's why all those old, th those old ideas that I carry around inside me from childhood don't hear me say blame the parents because I'm sure parents did exactly the best that they knew how to do because they too came from someplace. And, you know, I wouldn't have accepted it if there wasn't something in me that was in harmony with those old ideas. It's up to me to get rid of those old ideas. You know, I think back to some of the teachers I've had, and one of them was Chuck Chamberlain. When I first got, went to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1966, Chuck was still alive, and he came out to Prince Albert a lot because he was a friend of Cease, who was my first sponsor. And Chuck used to say to me, Miss Mildred, he'd say, and he would draw that globe, and he would put those X's in it, and then he would draw the line of demarcation, and he'd put that little stick figure, this, that, that whole picture that is in the book, the new pair of glasses, and he'd say, that's what's wrong with you. You have separated yourself from the whole. You stand out there, you believe a lie, you believe you're alone, you believe you're separate, and that's why you're in darkness and pain. It is not the truth about you. Now look what Carl Jung said when, when Bill Wilson wrote to him at, when AA was 25 years old. He responded about Roland Hazard, and he said, yes, of course he was drinking too much, but he said, I know, I knew what his problem was. He said he had separated himself from wholeness, that word wholeness keeps coming back like a song in the year 2001, and I think if we don't get it, that there's only one of us here. And no less a person than Einstein said precisely that. He said, it is an optical delusion that we're separate. Now, you'd swear, if you look with your human eyes, there are 3,000 people or so in this room. You'd swear there are 3,000 individuals, and yet this is what Einstein said. To the best of what he could see, there's only one of us here. He said it's an optical delusion that we're separate. And I think it was prophetic. He said we now have the weapons. He said if we don't get it, that we are one in a very practical way and change our behavior and all that, he said, we now have the technology and the weapons that we can blow up the earth and we can blow up one another. And I think that's really what we saw on September the 11th. So if that is the problem, what, is, what, what does the solution look like? I think it's precisely what Fast Eddie read. It's God. It's wholeness. Imagine Fast Eddie knowing something like that.
<laughs> you know, the book says the great reality lives within. Am I so arrogant as to think the great reality lives only in me? Am I so arrogant to think that I'm so special and that I'm so good? Because I don't think this is about being good. I think it's about becoming totally dependent on God. It's becoming totally aware that I'm part of the wholeness. And the more I focus on that, the more I change. It's the most practical thing I do. I teach a lot of classes these days, and it seems to me that that's really the only important thing that's going on on the planet. I know we can't go and sit and in isolation and, and say, well, I'm just going to go and, you know, get into my head and meditate. That's not what I'm saying. Because I think this is practical, because if you really get it, you change. I'm not on skid row today. I was 28 and a half years ago. I didn't know how to live with decent people because I wasn't a decent person myself. And I wasn't a decent person because I believed in separation. I believed in aloneness. And therefore, I could think about you any way I wanted. I could walk over your head if you had something that I wanted and I was determined to get it. I could do anything to you. See, it, does that come naturally? I don't think so. I think that's the gift of alcoholism. It knocks us to our knees. It shows us that indeed we are powerless, that we are not over, just over alcohol. I think it shows us that we do not, I don't think it means we don't have power. I couldn't stand up here if I didn't have power. But whose power is it? The book tells us that specifically that there is one who has all power, and that power is given me, and I have the choice. I can use that power to serve myself to get what I want, or I can use that power to remember that I'm just one of the people dancing on the planet, and that everybody is here, and that we're all one, and I need to treat you accordingly. You see, that's the goodness of this program, because when we do that, we put out a different energy. You see, and I think at some point your soul tells you that what I'm saying is right. Isn't that true? I think we come in a two-in-one package. There's a part of us that's made out of God. That's the great reality that lives within. And when we get still, we can hear the truth. We know that these kinds of things that we hear, you know when you hear the truth, and you, you may not be able to explain it with the intellect, that doesn't matter. You can't put an ocean in the teacup, and you can't put the concept of God in the teacup of your intellect anyway. That's why all the great spiritual teachings have said, get silent, be still, and know that I am God. See, and I think there's another part of this. There's the God part, and then there's that squealing little thing called the ego. And it makes a lot of noise. And it talks to us all the time, and it says, you're not good enough. And you're nobody. That's what mine says. You're nobody. Nobody cares about you. You're never included. Nothing good ever happens to you. Da-da-da-da-da-da. And I could go on with that. I have a choice today. I can listen to that. In, the hu in our human person, I think, sure, that can be true. I may not be good enough for something you want me to do, but it's not true in my divine person. And that's where I think we have the opportunity to look. And that's what I think the spiritual awakening really is, that I stop looking at these externals and judge everything by the color of somebody's skin, by their age, by how many wrinkles they have. Maybe that's why my propositions didn't go well to... <laughs> Coming to think of it... <laughs> that we don't judge things by the outside. And that's what I think Alcoholics Anonymous is at its best. And I think the more we think like this, the more we think in terms of oneness and wholeness and the goodness of people and who, what, what their identity really is, something happens, our energy changes. We put out a different energy and the world starts to treat us different. That's been my experience. Not that I'm always putting out a good energy. I still can put out the, the hooks and the whatever. But the more I do of this, the easier life flows. So that tells you a little bit about my thinking process. Now, how did I get here? I think I came onto the planet, it seems to me, not feeling good. 
I was always a court short. It was as if I'd had an implant that said, you're a nothing, you're a nobody, you're a girl for sure, you're not going to amount to anything. And then that was confirmed for me when I realized that the person I loved most on the planet, my sister Dora, cried at night. Dora had been injured at birth. And so in those days, they knew very little about um, retardation and learning disabilities and so on. The teachers kept her in grade three till she was 16. The, the children in the neighborhood made fun of her, and Dora was sad. She knew she was different, and she would cry at night, and she would come into my bed, and she would cry, and she would say, Mildred, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? And you might as well have taken a two-by-four and smacked me across the back because that's what it did to my insides. And I determined that I had to change that. See, I came from this great German family in which nothing was discussed. You know, and I'm, that's not a criticism. It's just the way it was. I think now we discuss our feelings till ad nauseum. And, <laughs> and be, saying I love you becomes a way of life and I walk over you, you know. So my, my father, it, well, let's just put it this way. It wasn't discussed. I know now... In hindsight, that my family loved Dora as much as I did. What happened, however, was I knew she was crying at night, and in my little three-and-a-half-year-old person, I determined it had to change. And so I gave my family their marching orders, and they didn't respond. And so I put up the walls, because my thought was, they're all stupid, and they're cruel, and they're hard. I'm the only one that sees the world right. I'm telling you the patterns of thinking and behaving that took me to Skid Row. Certainly the alcohol was part of it, but that wasn't it entirely. It was the way I related to people. I put up the walls against you. The problem was I couldn't get out and you couldn't get in, and I didn't want you in. So I had been raised as a Roman Catholic, and I heard that God was love and God was power. So I went to God. I said, God, you've got to fix this. It seemed logical to me. Dora hadn't harmed anybody. Why should she be in that position? Fix her. And God didn't respond. And I took the attitude, well, there's a useless twit for you. And I put God on the back burner for a while. You know, str strangely enough, I didn't turn against God. Something in me said, you're just not doing it right. That's what the problem is. And then at five years, I took a drink. I heard people say yesterday they started at 10 and 11 years. I didn't know that booze could do for me what it did. My father would have his friends in. They played poker. And they thought it was really cute, this little five-year-old pouring the home brew. And one night, I took a sip. And I went traveling. I had a spiritual experience. I found out that there is indeed a way to get rid of being restless, irritable, and discontented. I found out that there is one solution to all problems. I found out that there was a higher power who could do everything for me that I needed done. There was a hook to that, of course. It came out of a bottle, it was finite, and eventually it would take me and slam me against the wall and leave me for dead, practically. I'll t I can tell you my drinking story very simply. I drank whenever I could, wherever I could, with whomever I could, at any time that I could. I was not fussy. <laughs> After I experienced what alcohol could do for me, I'll tell you this, I never thought sober again. My whole experience, even as a child, was this, where's the booze? How am I going to get it? How can I get enough? How will I water it down? Da-da-da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying. I drank anything. Vodka was my preference because it doesn't smell. Isn't that lovely? <clears throat> I also drank vanilla. You've got to be sick to drink vanilla. Once in the convent... One night, the, the mother superior was sitting there, and we had a house sister in those days. She looked, did the tasks around the building. 
And the mother superior said to her, Sister, you must have baked cakes today. And she said, No, I didn't bake any cakes. And mother superior said, But I smelled a vanilla. It was just me in the corner burping. <laughs> and for some strange reason, I drank perfume. I did think my personal favorite was Chanel number no. five. As I walked down the corridor, I thought perhaps I should buy a bottle just for old time's sake. That kind of tells you who I was as a drinker. It became all important to me, and of course, as I went along, I drank more and more. Um, I became dependent on it, and then I became addicted to it, and the day came when I couldn't stop, when I needed to stop, and I couldn't stop. Fear wouldn't stop me. Self-knowledge wouldn't stop me. I was headed to disaster. At 18, I decided to go to a convent. Not smart if you don't like women, and I didn't. (laughs) But I still had this lurking in my mind that maybe I'd get the formula and God would fix my life. And so I went to this convent, and I was to stay there for 15 years. For a while, they used to bill me as the flying nun. Because I did a lot of flying in there, I was drunk the night I entered, and I stayed drunk for most of the 15 years that I was in there, but I functioned. And there's the rub. You see, when you function, as those of you who, who identify with this, you know that if you function, people will not smell you quite as much. They don't want to see what's really going on. And in the 50s and 60s, People didn't know anything about it. They knew very little about addictions, so they knew I was drinking, but they didn't know what to do with me. And because I functioned, they let me alone. How did I get booze? Don't ask. I lied, cheated, and stole, just like you did. I had a little compartment in my mind, you know, which said, that's not what a good sister should do, but we'll deal with that someday, and of course I did. One day, Mother Superior called me and asked me if I'd like to leave. Of course I'd like to leave. I never wanted to be there, for heaven's sake. So we wrote to Rome, and um, I got my dispensation. You see, if you in the Catholic Church, if you have vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, you can't just take the, the garment off and say, well, I'm no more a sister. You have to get the, the dispensation from the Vatican. So we wrote, and I got my dispensation. I remember January the 10th, 1966, standing on the convent steps. I was a very well-educated young woman. I had spent years studying theology, philosophy, psychology, and God knows what else, and I didn't know the first thing about life. It was all stuff for the intellect, nothing for the soul. I couldn't let any of that in. I stood there thinking it was as simple as being dispensed from my vows. I now had my secular name back. I was no longer Sister Mary Eugenia. And I no longer had to keep the rule of the School Sisters of Notre Dame. And I had shed my, my habit, and I was now in secular clothes. And I fully expected that I was going to march out into the secular world, and everything was going to be fine. It really was. Within three weeks, I was in jail. That, that may not impress you, but it impressed me. I was a drinker, so down to the bar I went. And just about the time some nice man was about to proposition me, I would tell him the sad story of my life, and, you know, I'm just about four weeks out of a convent. <laughs> Either he fell off the bar stool at that point or I fell off the bar stool at that point. And I had some very strange responses to that, I can tell you. Anyway, at the end of that 10-month period, which I can only describe as a descent into hell, it was a moral landslide. And I could not have explained it to you because I didn't set out to be that way. I couldn't explain to you why I was... I was the way I was. I just felt depraved. I felt bad. And I signed myself into what an insane asylum, which is what it was called then, 999 Queen Street. It was the Toronto equivalent to the snake pit. My brother found me there after two weeks. 
he snatched me out of there and he took me back to the University Hospital in Saskatoon, which is in the province of Saskatchewan, about 2,500 miles away from Toronto. And there I was to meet Dr. Abraham Hoffer, uh, who's mentioned as having had some consultations with Bill Wilson. And I was to meet Dr. Fred Frank, who was an alcoholic who was sober at the time, a psychiatrist on staff. And these two saw the, the treatment that was being administered to me, and they took a look and they felt that I was alcoholic. So they went to my doctor and said, we think she should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And my doctor, Dr. McCarricker, who was chief of staff and a very learned man, said, we couldn't do that. It would interfere with her treatment. You know what my treatment had consisted of? Hundreds of hours of therapy and shock treatments, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, they prevailed on him. And I thought, since Dr. Hoffer had a wife, I thought Dr. Frank deserved a reward, and I gave him one. I married him. And they used to say of us, that our neuroses were complementary. The rocks in his head fit the holes in mine. <laughs> I would think you would have to agree that a drunken ex-nun and a drunken psychiatrist could produce some very bizarre situations. I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous November the 15th, 1966. I did the steps. I read the book. Cease let me go on 12-step calls. He let me go out to the jail, to the women's jail on a regular basis. I went to meetings, and I did it all stoned. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> and I can tell you, I practiced some principles in all my affairs. You know, I had affairs. I was in AA, and I had affairs with everything that would stand long enough to talk to me. <laughs> I had a good time. <laughs> in one sense, a very bad time. And after five and a half years, I just walked out of there because, you know, one more time, I'm the hypocrite, I'm the loser. I'm doing it wrong. I like being sober. I like not having to drink, but I didn't know how to live. I remember after I got into AA. My brother was sober that time. He just died, and he was sober 49 years when he died. And I knew that he had changed, and this AA was good. But I didn't know what you had to do here. And, of course, I wasn't ready to do the work. And if you're not ready to do the work, you hear what you need to hear. And the book says the drinking of the alcohol is only the symptom. It is not the problem. You start to realize what the problem is when you don't drink the alcohol anymore because you have no anesthetic and there's no way to run away from yourself. And so I took drugs the whole time that I was there. So one more time, I was the loser. And uh, <clears throat> I, I stepped out of, uh, out of Alcoholics Anonymous. Up to that time, I have to tell you, I functioned one way or the other. I always had, you know, directed operettas. I had 300 voice choirs. I was a teacher. I, I did many things. But after that, the functioning stopped, and it became lonely, desperate, despairing drinking. My husband had started to drink. Neither of us was working. We lost everything in a very short time. It's amazing how long it takes to build up whatever it is you build up, and it just goes down the landslide like that, so that by the time I came here, I didn't have a home. I didn't have anything between me and disaster. In that year and a half, I had DTs. I had convulsions. I had blackouts. I'd wake up places I didn't even know that how I got there. I didn't know who I got there with. I was in Cincinnati last weekend. I was there 28 years ago <laughs> in a blackout. It was kind of nice to go back and see the city. And to be welcomed back, I might say. Um, where am I? So it's May the 18th, and I wake up in a psych ward in London, Ontario. And there are two men sitting at the foot of my bed, and they really were there. And uh, <laughs> one was a psychiatrist, and the other was a private detective who had been hired to find me. And 
I couldn't move the next day. I had what they call paralysis. And Sunday morning, the nurse came and took me to um, the washroom. And I saw myself. I had teeth knocked out. My hair was straggly. My right, my le- right eye was sticking out just like a lump on my face. My face was purple. I weighed about 80, 85 pounds. I looked a mess. And I let out a shriek. And I said, you know, I've become a woman of the streets, haven't I? And she said, yes, you have. And she added, what are you going to do about it? And took me back to my room after breakfast. And as I sat on the bed, I knew exactly what I was going to do about it. I had not a friend in the world left. I had behaved in ways that made it impossible for me to be fr- for people to be friends with me. I was a nasty piece of work. I had been told by anybody that I knew, do not come on our property. If you do, we will call the police and have you arrested. So just stay away. My family would not have seen me on the street, but they said, you can come home, but on our terms. You may not drink and you may not behave the way you have behaved all over God's creation. And uh, that was unacceptable to me, so I made the decision that I would take my life because I was unemployable. I had no idea how I could stay on this planet and not just become a full-time prostitute. And that was the line in the sand for me. You know, don't ask me why I thought that's what the line in the sand was, but it was. I just couldn't see any way that I could live. And so I decided I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I started to get out of bed to get my clothes and I had a a powerful spiritual experience. It was as if a giant hand reached into me. The compulsion to drink, and I knew it was gone. I, who for 35 years had not wanted to be sober one minute, the compulsion was gone, and I knew it was washed clean. And I think that is the mystery of grace. Grace is offered to us always. It's not just offered to me. And why it's offered in in the way it is, I have no idea, but I do not believe in a capricious God. What I believe is the mystery that God knows what we do not know. And that's why we see so often people come into the program and we say they're not going to make it and that one is and we're dead wrong because we do not know the human heart and we do not know the path that a soul has gone. And I believe that God knew that morning that I was ready not just to accept the gift of not having to drink anymore, but that I was ready to do the work because I heard my voice say, whoever you are, I don't know how to live sober. You'll have to send me somebody. And I swear to you, there was a rap on the door as I said those words. And a man stood there and he said, I saw you at breakfast. He said, are you an alcoholic? And I said, yes. Do you want to make something of it? He said, no. He said, I came to see if I could offer you some help. And you see, I think that was to be the first of a series of things that began to happen that shouldn't have happened, but they did. And I believe from that that we swim in grace. We swim in it, and it swims in us. We didn't create it, we can't earn it, but we do have to accept it. And I think that's what Alcoholics Anonymous really is. It is that process by which we help one another to accept grace, because that's really what the deal is. And that man then took me on Tuesday to a a hospital that had been started by Dr. Bell, who was one of the pioneers in North America, I might say, in the field of treating alcoholics. And the nurse uh, gave me the interview, and she said, you certainly need treatment. But she said, you have no money. Yeah, right. And she said, therefore, we can't let you in. So I was walking out despondent when I heard this big, booming voice say, Stop that woman. Get her a bed now. And so they brought me back, and they found me a place, and that was where I started. I went through that process of 28 days, and then to Skid Row, and then to a little job where I made $2.20 an hour, 
My husband was sitting there depressed. I didn't know there were places like Skid Row. I sure had never been inside one of those rooms. And I'll never forget opening the door and what I saw. I also knew deep in my heart that my family had not put me there. I had put me there through my behavior and through the way I had been. And I said to myself, you know, and I used to criticize my family and say, you know, they didn't do this and they weren't this, da-da-da-da-da-da. And what I realized as I look back, I got some wonderful gifts from my family. I got a wonderfully healthy body from them. I got a wonderful mind from them. I got a sense of integrity, which even though I didn't use it for many years, stood me in good stead as I began this journey on the spiritual path. And I also had a great strength which said, you can do this, you can do whatever it is that you have to do, just hang in there. And that's what I did. After six months, I was walking down the corridors of the Donwood Institute one Sunday morning, and a man coming down the corridor smiled at me. It had been a long time since anybody had smiled specifically at me. And he said, we have a meeting going on. He said, uh, would you like to come? Now, I hated AA. I hated God. I cursed God. I wanted nothing to do with this business. His smile was what was the connecting link, and I said, sure, I'd love to come. And I went into that meeting, and the miracle of grace that is in these rooms started to melt my heart. And I started to love Alcoholics Anonymous. And talking about that series of events, I was in exactly the right meeting with exactly the right people for certain things to happen. Because while I was at that meeting, there were two men there who loved their sobriety enough to understand what this was really all about. And after three months, you see, I'm sober and clean now, six, nine, six months, nine months, rather. And I'm talking about how I still feel bad inside. And they took me aside. My first sponsor had gotten drunk. I had chosen her because she wore gold earrings, was blonde, and had on white slacks. Isn't that great qualifications for a sponsor? She went and got drunk, and so I had no sponsor. And uh, these two fellows said to me, you need to do the steps. You need to take what we're talking about inside yourself. And the only way you can do that is by doing the steps. And they said, if you will come and be faithful to this. And I was. Every, every meeting night, they would come an hour and a half early, and they would, we would go into a little room, and they would read the book to me because I couldn't read at that point. I couldn't retain anything. I was so fragmented and scattered. They did the steps with me, and the gift to me of that was this. It's like penicillin, you know. You don't have to like penicillin or know much about pen anything about penicillin. All you have to do is take the dosage that's that is recommended. And I took the dosage that was recommended, and what I saw from doing the steps was that nobody else was to blame for my life, that I had done it, and that nobody had to change. For me to be okay, I could change, and that was good news. I met a woman while I was there. I had to hear what she told me. She said, you are the meanest, ugliest, most self-centered individual it has ever been my misfortune to meet. <laughs> and if you don't change, you will come to a bitter end. I needed to hear that. I needed to, I needed to experience the poverty we experienced that year. I needed to be at that place where sometimes we didn't have anything to eat. I needed to know what that felt like because what started to happen was my value started to change. I remember one time in this situation, no money at what I've described to you, sitting on the subway weeping. And what I was, what I was weeping for was I felt something. I felt a little hope, which I had not felt in a very long time. So one year went by. And I got my one-year medallion. We don't take cakes. We get medallions, one, five, 10, 15, et cetera, years. And uh, the day after that one-year medallion, a whole other set of things began to happen. It was a real godshot. I'm a high school teacher by profession, have taught college classes. And I thought I would never teach again. 
because I had been blackballed. And the voice said, go look in the paper. I did. And there was a teaching job offered. I had no clue what I was getting into. I went and applied, and within three hours I had a job. I was as together that morning, even though I was quite crazy. When I went for that job, it had to be a God deal because I was completely together. They couldn't wait to get my signature on that contract, and three months later they said, holy cow, where did we get this one? Because I was quite crazy. The job was dealing with emotionally disturbed adolescents. <laughs> You're sick. The most disturbed of the lot was at the front of the room, I can tell you. And as I say that, I think of all the wonderful people that have crossed my path, both in the program and out, who have taken the time to teach me. See, I went, when I stopped drinking, I think I was about five years old emotionally and in every other way, except that I had the body of a, of a woman. And so I got busy in AA. And I had, they used to call it Mildred's Sponsor Mobile. I had an old, an old rented car. And I would gather all these women. You, you'd be at the door at 7.30. You'd be at the door at 7.40, etc. I'd round them all up, and we'd roll into the meeting. And um, amazingly, every single one of those girls got drunk. But I stayed. And I don't believe that's because I was a bad sponsor, you know. It's just the way it was. And I, I was busy in a busy at my group. I was a participant. I was sponsoring people. I was being sponsored. And I got another sponsor. I met him one night at a meeting, and I thought, he's tough enough to deal with me. He says I was the toughest piece of work that he ever saw. He gave me an, he gave me an instruction one day. He said, you call me tomorrow morning, and I called him the next morning, and he said, did you do what I asked you to do? And I said, well, no. I mean, I never did what anybody asked me to do. He said, I'm going to say this to you once and once only. I never will ask you to do anything I do not do myself, and if I ask you to do it, I'm asking you to do it because you have asked me to sponsor you, and I expect you to follow my directions. If you do not do what I ask you to do, do not bother ever to call me again because you're wasting your own time and mine. And that was the kindest thing that ever happened to me. I needed that boot on my backside. And he helped me to grow up, I can't tell you, the debt of gratitude I owe to that man and his wife. At seven years, he realized I had my debts paid off. I had paid off my husband's debts. You should have known me in those days, fellas. And... <laughs> We were separate, separated and um, divorced by that time, actually. But I wanted my name cleared because I come from a family of integrity, and I wanted my name cleared, and we did that. And at seven years, I was um, still angry. And so he took me through the steps. And the gift to me at that time was forgiveness. The gift to me at that time was the release of a lot of anger that I had buried. I think I've done the steps in, in sequence from 1 to 12 three times, and every time there's been a new gift, and I'm about ready to do them again. That time it was the gift of forgiveness, the release of anger, and when we finished it was as if the wind were on my back. I could do no wrong. I got promotions at work, and <clears throat> another God deal showed up. I went one day to visit a friend, and she said, Mildred, you should come. She said, you should start buying houses. My sponsor's accountant three weeks before had said, you have no money. He said, you can't make money. You have none to start with. Well, it was a God shot because I'll tell you, in eight days, I had my first house, which was to be the first of many, and I became a very wealthy woman. I tell you that not because of the money, because that's really kind of irrelevant as I look at it now. What was important about it was the lesson. And I believe if you need a lesson, and if you're ready for an experience, you're going to get it. It will come running to you, just like this came running to me. I wasn't even really um, thinking of the kind of money that I made. The point was, there was an illusion in me. And the illusion was, by the way, Frank, do you want me now? <laughs> just a thought.
The devil made me do that. <laughs> the illusion I had was, it, and it was buried very deep, was that money would fix things. That if you had money, you could buy friends, you could buy things, you could buy your way wherever you wanted. And I remember the day came when I sat in my custom-designed house on my custom-designed furniture with my red convertible on the driveway. I had arrived, and I was sitting on that sofa, weeping more bitterly than I ever had because I said, this isn't it either. And then at 18 years, I did the steps again with my new sponsor. And the gift to me was this. I knew there was more. I didn't quite know how it was all going to unfold, but unfold it did because I was willing to hang in there at 20 years, I broke off a relationship, and at 21 years, I gave up my job because the voice said, resign, and I did. It's amazing if we start to listen to that voice, the kind of guidance it will give us. And I sat there at 21 years, and I couldn't tell you why I was on the planet. I went through a depression. I stood at the brink, and I said, I'm out of here. I'm, I've done everything they've asked me to do in AA. I'm busy. I'm contributing. I'm accepting what I can, you know, and I'm being sponsored. And all the things you can think of, I could tell you I had done them. You see, I think that the spiritual life is just that. It's life, and life has to continue to grow. And in order to continue to grow, a stripping process has to take place. Meister Eckhart put it this way. He said, the soul grows by subtraction. You see, the ego grows by addition, but the soul grows by subtraction. And I understand what the process was. I made up my mind that day I was going to take my life, and again, I had a spiritual experience. And I didn't know, again, how it was going to be, be okay, but I knew it was okay. And I suited up and showed up, and one day one of the Jesuits called me, and he said, Mildred, he said, I'd like you to come and give some retreats at the Manresa Center. Would you do that? And I said, well, you know, Father, you don't know how many times I've been excommunicated. And uh, he said, I didn't ask you about that. He said, I, I just um, would like you to come. And so that began a whole new way of life for me. It began a whole fullness of life. You know, I love to teach. I love nothing better. And it um, has given me an opportunity to, to use the skills that I have and it has led to seminars and, and talks and all kinds of things. And, I've, you know, it opened up a life of service such as I have never known. See, I'm alone. I keep telling the fellas, I take resumes, and every once in a while I get one. Um, and, you know, the book says there are some of us can dedicate our life in that way. And... My life has been filled with that kind of thing. But it's not only that. You see, this last seven years, seven and a half years, has been a great experience of growth for me because I won't go into how all this happened, but I'll tell you the, the things that I have learned. And one of them is I came to that place one day where the book says you will come to the place we're faced by a self-imposed crisis, you will have to make a decision. Either God is everything or God is nothing. And I was at the place where I said, I don't understand this, but I'm going to make the decision that, God, you are everything. And like I said, do I understand that with my intellect? Absolutely not. Do I understand it with my heart? Absolutely and life has changed from that day. And I began to realize another thing. I began to realize that at some deep level, I had still been analyzing and trying to fix my own life. That in some way I still had ex expectations. And that whatever I did, I did it that's, with an expectation that, that would, at the end of that I would get something and that my life would change. And I realized at that point how outer-oriented I still was. If that happens on the outside, if they say that, if I see them, if that happens, if they give me that, etc., etc., I will feel different. 
And at some point, I just had to abandon myself utterly and say, here I am. I don't know what the next step is. I will do the next right thing. And it's just amazing what happens when you do that. I have a way of life today that is, I would say, very satisfying. I used to read that part where it says God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free, and I will not tell you what my response to that was because I was not happy, joyous, and free. I looked good on the outside. You know, and I can't tell you since I talk about that 21-year depression and my plan to commit suicide at that time, how many people have come to me in, who are sober a longer period of time and say, I went through that too, or I'm going through that, and I don't know what that's about. I think it's about a deeper level of surrender. It's about a deeper level of the stripping of the ego so that the goodness that we really are can shine forth. What I have been trying to say is this, that I feel that there has been a hand of guidance in my life that has taken me precisely where I have needed to be. I was in the airport one, one day two years ago, and I saw a father with a little child. And he was trying to direct the eyes of the vision of that child to something he wanted the child to see. And whether the child had not developed sufficient focus or whatever, it was interesting to watch because he'd move his cheek and he'd say, no, look over there. And you could tell the child still hadn't seen it. And it was interesting to watch the father gently and carefully trying to redirect the vision of that child to see what the father saw. And that's what I think my life has been. And I'd like to tell you two stories because they both, I can't account for what occurred. You have your own stories, but I'll just share these and then I'll go find Frank. Eighteen years ago, I was still very addicted to sunbathing. And uh, if the sun was out, so was I. And one day I was out sunbathing, and a friend came by. And about two o'clock in the afternoon, she decided to go home. And I realized that there were still about three good hours of sunbathing time left, so I decided to stay outside. And since the sun was hot, I needed my suntan lotion, and it was gone. She had obviously accidentally put it in her bag and had taken it. So I decided to go inside and get some more suntan lotion. And as I came in the door, the phone was ringing. And I almost didn't pick it up. But I thought, maybe it's her, and I'll give her a piece of my mind. And uh, there was a man on the other end. It was one of my colleagues said, I've been calling you all day. Now, I knew that there was a person on staff who had a severe drinking problem and that the principal had said to me, one day, if that man is willing, I'm going to put him in charge of you. Heaven. <laughs> and um, maybe you will try and help him. I didn't know who it was. Anyway, it was this man. And I'll call him Ted. That's not his real name, but... He said, I was at a wedding yesterday. He's an uh, Orthodox Jewish person. He said, I was at a wedding yesterday. And he said, I created a disaster, one of many. He said, I cannot absolutely stay here any longer the way I am. I cannot trust myself. I'm at the end of the road. I've done it too many times. My family is disgusted with me. I'm disgusted with me, and I absolutely do not know what to do. Now, it was no secret in the school and at the board that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, I wonder if you could help me. Why, was, why did my friend take that lotion? Why did I decide to stay out? And why did I decide to go back in and get some more lotion? You see, I think when God's work needs to be done, I think that's the way it always is. We swim in this grace. All we really have to do is suit up and show up. 
practice these principles as best we can. And then it's like it says in the big book, it's the passive voice. The problem has been removed, and I believe that good life is done unto us. Because when I scratch for life, I always make a mistake. I look at my life and I realize that nothing of significance has happened in my life by my doing. Much of disaster has happened in my life by my doing. That's one, and, and Ted got sober, and he is now a very uh, at home with his family, uh, you know, a very responsible businessman, and a wonderful member of Alcoholics Anonymous, just celebrated 18 years. And I'd like to share just a little bit about my sister Dora's death because, again, it shows to me the kindness and generosity of a good God and how things really happen and how we interact with one another if we allow the goodness that we are to, to flow out. How it is you help me and I help you and then we help somebody else and that's the chain. I received a call one day, well, I had started doing big book studies and various kinds of things. And a woman had been in one of those studies. And one afternoon, she called me and she said, Mildred, I am calling to thank you. My mother just died. And she said, uh, I can't thank you enough because she said, I knew what to do. And she went on to describe her mother had Alzheimer's and she was in a coma. And she said, I knew how to be loving to her. And she said, we stroked her and we talked to her. And she said, I thought of you all the time. And she said, my mother has just died about 10 minutes ago, and I wanted to tell you first because I really think it's because of you that I was able to, do, uh, to be there. I didn't know anything about death. I had never said anything about how to be at a deathbed. But something from our communication had showed her, wasn't what I had taught, she had received something through me, that's all, and she knew how to do, what to do at that deathbed. The ways of God never end, you see. About six months later, I got a call from my brother-in-law. Dora had lived with one of my sisters and my brother-in-law, and when they took her in, when my mother died, they had a small family, and they still took her in, and they gave her a beautiful home. You know, if there are angels on the planet, they're it. And my brother-in-law called me, and he said, Dora is dying. And if you want to see her, he said, you better come home right now. I was just stunned. And um, it so happened that there were three of my sponsees at my home. Just so happened, eh? I don't believe that. They took care of me. And the next morning, they stayed with me that night. And the next morning, they packed my suitcase and they got me a ticket, and they got me to the airport. And I remember sitting on the plane thinking, the coward in me thinking, I hope she's dead when I get there so I don't have to deal with it. I don't know how to deal with it. And I got off the plane. My brother picked me up, and uh, Dora was still alive. And I shook all the way to the hospital. And an amazing thing happened to me when I got to the threshold of the, her hospital room. All fear left me. And all that was left was really a heart of love. And I went in, and remembering what my friend had said, I knew what to do. I went over to that bed. And I stood with her for the next 18 hours. And I think that is my first experience, really, of unconditional love. All I had in mind was that I would be helpful to her and that I would help her prepare herself for the journey. And we talked all night. She couldn't talk. She was, I should say, I talked all night. And, uh, you know, prayed with her. And when I could, she loved the song, You Are My Sunshine, and I would sing it to her. And I stayed with her all night, and the next morning we took off the life support and we gathered the family around, and uh, about two hours later, she, she died. And I just watched what was happening. Don't ever fear to be present there, because if you're there with a heart of love, it's the most awesome experience that I've ever had.
I knew that I was losing my soulmate. I knew that I had lost my teacher because though she was retarded, so-called, she had been my teacher. She came to a place of surrender in her own life where she accepted the fact of what her life was. And in the last year, she said to me, you know, Mildred, I don't cry myself to sleep anymore. And as I stood there watching the body, I heard a voice in the room say, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. It was my sister. She knew. I think she understood that everything that I have and everything that I know how to do, and if there's any goodness in me, that it's only the goodness that has come to me through you. And I can't tell you how happy I was to hear those words right after my sister died. I believe today that there is a creative intelligence that is unconditional love. We are part of it. There is no separation. If you exist, it may feel that we're separate, but we're not. And so I think all there is left really is love. It's as plain as that. I love you. God bless you.